You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. What's going on? My name is Adam, one of the pastors. I want to welcome you to our church, especially if this is your first time. Uh, I want to invite you also to open to Ephesians chapter 1. We're uh, in the second week in our series, Gospel Family, going through verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And if you remember last week, we did a bit of an intro, just kind of covering the book, the author, the intended uh, recipients of the letter, the greeting. And uh, you might remember one of the key themes we talked about last week was that Ephesus was a really hard, dark, secular city. And uh, the, the Christians in that city were being opposed. They were going through a lot of challenges. And so Paul writes the book of Ephesians to encourage these Christians to overcome the darkness and to, to hang on. And a lot of good fruit came out of that. And uh, well, anyway, I think Satan heard that sermon because he hit me like crazy last week. I don't know if you had an easy week. I had a really hard week. It was just one of those weeks, man. I, you, like, it almost feels like Ashton Kutcher is going to pop out and say, you're punked, you know, like... The, uh, that, that was a bit of a millennial joke, but basically what happened, I'll, let me just give you a brief rundown of, of last week for me. So I preached the sermon about, you know, seven days ago exactly. I, I went to Chipotle with uh, Andrew Garner, who's one of our church planning residents, and uh, that should have been a sign right there. I started my week out with Chipotle, and uh, wow, you guys love Chipotle, I guess. I'm, I'm, it's great. I, you know, I, I won't hate on Chipotle too much because, uh, let me, if you don't get anything else from this sermon, by the way, Chipotle's vinaigrette slaps. It's phenomenal. You, you add some sour cream in there, it's delicious. So I went to get the vinaigrette with steak tacos, right? And as I'm in line waiting to place my order, I start feeling itching everywhere. And I'm trying to have a conversation with Andrew, but I'm like, what is going on with my body? It's the weirdest thing. And then I, I go to order my food, and I can tell that the employees are, are really struggling, having a rough day. Um, I asked for like two vinaigrettes, and she's like, oh, we're out. And it, I could tell, like, they weren't out. They just didn't want to make more, you know what I mean? They're just they're having a rough day. Well, anyway, two customers after me, the customer gets in a fight with the employee at Chipotle, and the customer takes the tip jar and throws it at the face of the employee, and it's, she dodges and hits the back of the wall, and, and one of the coins hits another customer, like, on the face, and that customer fights with another customer, and he has a gun. Yeah, and they, like... One guy runs, and the other guy runs after him. Ask Andrew Garner. It was crazy, but I can't even pay attention to what's happening because I'm just doing this the whole time. <laughs> I'm so itchy. It's like, this is a foreshadowing of my week. And I get home, and I take my shirt off, and I'm like, Sherry, what is wrong with my body? And so she looks at my back, and I can tell it's wrong because the first thing she does is she says, <gasps> Adam! Like, I didn't do anything. She says, your entire back is red. Your whole body is red. I'm covered in hives, and I can't stop itching. It looks like I have leprosy. It's disgusting. In fact, there are shirtless pictures of me going around the church right now because there's so many medical people in our church. Just try, like, our church is an episode of House right now, like trying to figure out what happened to Adam's body. And I was in bed for three days itching. Couldn't even work. On top of that, last week was my wife's birthday, she got food poisoning at her birthday dinner. Our kids are sick. My son had a 104-degree temperature last night. Almost took him to urgent care. He's not here this morning because he's not doing well. And on top of it all, my dog peed on our clean, folded laundry. <laughs> like, could you pee on the dirty laundry? Why do you have to pee on the clean, folded laundry? You just ever have one of those weeks? And so... I'm laying in bed, it's Wednesday morning at 4 a.m., and I'm itching. I can't even sleep. I'm frustrated, and I, what else am I going to do but work on my sermon that I haven't started yet? I know it's a really easy topic. It's on the doctrine of election. If you haven't heard about that, there's a reason you probably haven't heard about it, because it's like the hardest thing to preach on. And so I'm working on this sermon, and what's the key theme of Ephesians 1? Praising God. It's really a chapter about worshiping God. In fact, did you know uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is just one incredibly long sentence of 202 words of worship? 
Paul has this topic sentence in, in verse 3, which is kind of a general statement. He, he essentially says, we should bless God, we should praise God because God has pr- blessed us. And then he teases all of those blessings out in chapter 1 with this fire hydrant of a sentence about all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. And one textual scholar actually calls uh, this the most monstrous, monstrous sentence conglomeration that I've ever seen in the Greek language. So Paul would not pass English class, but he does pass worship class. And this section is really all about praising God, and I'm sitting there, 4 a.m., like Wednesday morning, can't sleep, itching, uncomfortable. I haven't even started the sermon, basically. That's weighing on me, and I'm just meditating on this text, asking myself, do I feel like praising God right now? Do I feel like worshiping right now? Honestly, not really. I'm a little frustrated with the circumstances in my life. And what really challenged me as I meditated on this text was the author of the chapter 1 is the Apostle Paul. And do you remember where the Apostle Paul is writing Ephesians 1 from? Prison. This guy's in jail. He's chained to a Roman guard. And what's he doing as he's chained in prison? He's writing a one 202-word sentence of worship. And Paul is so thankful and so worshipful and so joyful that he's writing this letter so frankly, there's like smoke coming off his pen. He can't even pause to put a period down. He's so excited. He's so thankful. And I'm sure many of you come into this room this morning like I did with awful circumstances, difficult issues going on in your life, either because of your own mistakes or perhaps someone else's mistakes or maybe it's just the result of living in a broken, fallen world. And the question I want to pose to us this morning is, can we still worship even when life isn't the way we want it to be? Can we still sing? Can we still bless God even when we're in the muck? And what Paul wants for us to see this morning is that if we are in Christ, wherever we are, however we are, we are blessed. We can have joy, unshakable. Paul's body was in prison, but his heart was in heaven. And Paul exemplifies to us that our worship and our joy and our praise is never dictated by our circumstance, but by our inheritance. The great theologian Chance the Rapper in his song, Blessings, which in my opinion is the best song in his catalog. You might know it starts the song with, um, I'm gonna praise him. Praise Him till I'm gone. And the chance comes in and He says, When the praises go up, the blessings come down. I did okay. <laughs> A little pitchy there, but you get the idea, right? But the Apostle Paul would say, Chance, you got the order wrong. Because so many blessings have been bestowed upon us, regardless of what we have done through the Father and through the Son and through the Spirit, Our blessings, our praises always return up. Because we've already been blessed, we can unceasingly be praising up. And that's my hope for you today, that you would leave praising up. Now, some parts of Ephesians 1 are very controversial. So before we jump in uh, to the doctrine of election, which is really what we're going to cover this morning... I just want to just hit six preliminary truths we got to get on the same page on as we go through the text this morning. Here's the first truth I want us to be on the same page and agree on, is that the purpose of Ephesians 1, number one, is doxology, not debate. The purpose of this text is doxology, or praise, not debate. There are some doctrines in this passage that have caused a lot of debate, namely the doctrine of election. And, you know, bringing up election at church is kind of like bringing up the other kind of election anywhere else. It usually leads to a disagreement and a broken friendship. But that's not the spirit of the text. The spirit of Ephesians 1 is not argument. The spirit of Ephesians 1 is adoration. Paul's not interested in writing for us a systematic theology that answers all of your doctrinal questions. He's not trying to unravel all the theological problems. All Paul is doing here is worshiping the God of the Bible. This is a worship text. 
If you look at verse 3, Paul starts this introductory phrase with worship. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These opening words are an outburst of praise to God. You know, that word blessed actually is language of worship. Praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father doesn't so much mean God is blessed. It more so means God is worthy of being praised by us. No matter what our week was like, we should be singing to Him. We should be thanking Him. And that's the ultimate purpose of this book, to lead you to praise God, to help you fall in love with Jesus. Really, that's the purpose of my job. If my teaching isn't helping you fall more in love with Jesus, then I'm not doing my job. The goal every week is not for you to walk away thinking, what a great sermon. The goal is for you to walk away thinking, what a great Savior. So if you're not falling more in love with Jesus and this God who has blessed you, we're missing out on the goal. We should praise God, Paul says at the beginning of verse 3. Why should we praise God, Paul? Why, is, why should we bless God? End of verse 3, because God, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the introductory sentence. God has not given you a spiritual blessing. God has not given you some spiritual blessings. He's not given you a lot of spiritual blessings. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Just the wide-ranging scope of blessing is what's emphasized here. If you're in my generation, you're a millennial, you remember watching Nickelodeon as a kid? You remember those like, really cool scenes where a kid could pick anything he wanted out of Toys R Us for free? Or he got a shopping cart, and he could fill up the shopping cart with as much stuff as he wanted in five minutes. And I've always dreamed of that scenario. If you're Gen Z, you got Mr. Beast, right? Like, put everything you want from the store in this little square, and you get to keep all that, Right? If you're an older generation, we love you. I don't know what you have. Maybe, maybe the price is right. Whatever's behind this door, you get that, you know. Or you work hard and you buy it yourself. I, I don't know. But God's like, here's not everything in the square. Here's not everything behind the door. Here's not everything you can grab in five minutes. Here's the entire store. Every spiritual blessing in Christ in, in the heavenly realms, essentially, is yours. Anything you can need, I've provided, he says. It's like a fogo to chow of blessing. And the light is always green for us. This is why Paul is worshiping. Verse 3 starts with the declaration of praise. Verse 14 ends with the declaration of praise. And in between these bookends of praise in Ephesians 1, Paul is going to break down for us the contents of our blessings. Why and what are every spiritual blessing we've received? And, and you're supposed to read this text kind of like you're sitting in a lawyer's office and you found out there's a rich relative you didn't know about and there's a will, there's an inheritance given to you that you didn't earn or deserve. Like I leave my Lamborghini to Adam. I leave my gold Rolex to Adam. I leave my 250 grand of Tesla stock to Adam. Like that feeling is the feeling as we read Ephesians 1. You're supposed to read this and hear God saying to you, I give to you all of these blessings. Election. I'm going to call you before the foundations of the earth to be my own. Uh, adoption. I'm going to make you my son or daughter. Redemption. I'm going to save you even though you can't save yourself and bring you to my home. Sanctification. I'm going to work out every evil out of your heart and make you more like Jesus. And on and on and on. These are some of the blessings we'll see. And so that is why Paul here is like, today's a good day. He's sitting there chained to Brutus. Barely eating, barely drinking, in the worst conditions ever. And he's like, I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And so if we leave Ephesians chapter 1 arguing instead of adoring, we've missed the point of the text. If we leave with full minds but empty hearts, we've missed the point of the text. God is not like a dead frog in high school lab on the table where you get to coldly investigate and prick and prod and then write a paper about all you've observed. Ephesians 1 is not a factual download. It's a love letter to you from God. So the purpose here, let's remember, is doxology, not debate. Second thing we need to keep in mind is that the key that unlocks every spiritual blessing is Christ. Notice the text says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. So the only way you get 
all of these spiritual blessings of salvation is if you're in Christ. He is the key that unlocks the safety deposit box of all the spiritual blessings in Ephesians 1. And therefore, he is to be exalted by believers because apart from Christ, we have no spiritual blessings. And maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, or you're, perhaps you're, you're a new Christian, that's maybe, or maybe someone who's considering Christianity, and you've been turned off by what you've seen in the news, what you've seen in the media, uh, about a pastor who's done something stupid, a church that's done something stupid. And we just want to commend to you Jesus this morning, who is the great senior pastor, who is the object of our affections today, who is the key that unlocks every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We point your eyes to him. You need to be in Christ to have all this. Third thing to keep in mind is that the blessings of Ephesians 1 are already, not yet. You'll notice the text continues and says, end of verse 3, that we have been blessed with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which is kind of a trippy sentence, right? In fact, a lot of the blessings you're going to see in Ephesians 1 feel a little ethereal. Like, what does this have to do with my life right now? And basically, what, what is being said here is that if we know Jesus, heaven and all of its benefits are ours right now. That we are experiencing a bit of heaven on earth today. There is what scholars call an already not yet dimension to our salvation. We're not in heaven right now. But we don't have to wait until we die and get to heaven to taste those heavenly realities. Right now, you can enjoy the benefits of your salvation that will go on into eternity. But, and we are anticipating them to be consummated in the future. Let me give you an example of what this means. Some of you guys like to go out in the country when you go on vacation. You rent an Airbnb in the forest. I guess that's what people do. I prefer the beach, a little beach house, a little sandals, Jamaica. That's more my thing. Some of you want to go in the middle of the wilderness and hike. Have fun. Say you did that, right? You, you rented an Airbnb in a, in a cabin. And you decide, I'm going to go hiking in the woods with no one around. And you went hiking and you got lost in those woods. You've never been there before. You don't know where anything is, and you can't find the path back to the cabin that you rented. And it's getting dark, and it's starting to get cold, and you might freeze, and you might starve, and you have no idea where you are, and you're worried about bears. But then, say hypothetically, in the distance, as you're lost, you have no idea where you're going or where anything is, in the distance you see a light, and it's the light of the cabin. And instantly, what happens? You feel relief. You feel warmth. You feel provision. Because there is, in that light, a very real, distant, already but not yet hope prevalent as you see the cabin. And Ephesians 1 is telling us that even though these blessings have not been fully realized yet, when you're lost in the dark forest of this world, the awareness of Jesus' blessings in the heavenly realms that he has provided for you a safe cabin in heaven, comforts you. It's the light that dawns upon you and gives you a very real hope and joy right now. Heaven's hope is your current hope. Heaven's joy is your current joy. Heaven's peace is your current peace. The fact that you have a cabin secure in heaven gives you an already not yet blessing. Fourth thing to keep in mind is that, mind blown, all of these blessings are eternal. Notice how chapter 1 goes from eternity to eternity. Verse 4, he mentions eternity past, what God's doing before the foundations of the world. Then in verse 10, Paul transitions and talks about eternity future, what God's going to do at the end of the world when he unites everything under King Jesus. So, pretty crazy, all of these blessings are eternal. From past to future. There's no beginning and no end. Something to keep in mind. Fifthly, as we go through this text... We need to keep in mind that the end of Ephesians 1 in these blessings is God's glory. Throughout chapter 1, Paul shares that God's ultimate aim in blessing you is the praise of his glory. Three times he says God has done, verse 6, everything to the praise of his glorious grace. Why has God blessed you so much so you can exalt him for his grace? 
Verse 12, he says it again. He says, we have experienced these blessings to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, again, to the praise of his glory. Over and over and over again, God is reiterating to you and I that he saves his people for his glory. Why has he done what he has done for us? So we may exalt him for who he is. And we should read this chapter and revel in God's grace, revel in God's blessing, and realize everything we have when it comes to these blessings is because, isn't because we have earned them or merited them or deserved them. It's all because of his glorious grace, and he is worthy of all our praise. And that's why he did it. Last truth to keep in mind, and we'll jump into the, the matter at hand election. And that is the source of these blessings. All of them are Trinitarian. Look at the first verse in this section, verse 3. You notice that you see every member of the Godhead here. Every member of the Godhead is involved in blessing you. You see God the Father. You see the Lord Jesus who has blessed us with spiritual blessing, implying that these blessings come from the Holy Spirit. And even the structure of Ephesians 1 is Trinitarian, scholars say. Verses 3 through 6, you see the blessings that come from the Father. Verses 7 through 10, you see the blessings that come from the Son. And then verses 11 through 14, we see the blessings that come from the Spirit. And so we're going to progress through this over the next week or two. And that's going to be our outline. We're going to see the blessings from the Father. We're going to cover one of those blessings this morning, the blessing of election. We'll see some of the other ones uh, next week, like adoption. We'll see also the blessings from the Son, blessings from the Spirit. Let's start with this one, just this one today. Why should we praise God? We've been blessed by the Father through election. Buckle up. I remember the first time, actually, I read Ephesians 1. I was in a college cafeteria, eating my lunch, just reading the Bible. And I read this chapter, and I couldn't put, pick my fork up. And I couldn't chew because my mouth was so open. My mind was blown by what was being proclaimed here. And I think that will happen to us right now. Are you ready? Just take in what God's word says to you. Verse 3, Paul says we're blessed. God is worthy of praise. Why? He tells us verse 4. It's election. Even as he, God, chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, for some people, when we hear those words, chose, predestined, it scares them. For many of you, maybe you're new to Christianity, you have no concept of those words. You've never heard them before. But we should not be frightened or intimidated by these words, because these are Bible words. It says God's goodness in giving us his truth. These words should inspire worship in us, not fear, not confusion. Again, this is what Paul's doing. He's worshiping God for who he is. And you could say the whole Bible is a book about God choosing a people, predestining a people. In the Old Testament, God chose Noah and his family as a remnant to build an ark. God chose Abraham to be a blessing unto the nations. God chose or predestined Jacob over his brother Esau to be the father of Israel. God chose the nation of Israel to be the light unto the nations. God chose to remove Saul as king of Israel and then appointed David over all his other brothers to be the new king of Israel. God, Jesus chose the 12 disciples who would then become the 12 apostles. You want to really have your mind blown? The Old Testament and New Testament say Jesus and God chose Judas to betray him. And then Paul adds in 1 Corinthians that God chose what is low and despised in the world so that we would have no room to boast in his presence. And so now, in Ephesians, Paul picks up on this common biblical idea that God has chosen individuals that he will save, and these believers make up what is called the church. This is called the doctrine of election. 
Election is basically the idea that you do not initiate your own salvation. God initiates your salvation. To be, put it really plainly, election means if you had 100,000 opportunities to choose between yourself as Savior or Jesus as Savior, 100,000 of 100,000 times you would pick yourself as Savior over Jesus. You, essentially, election means that you would never choose or seek God unless God first sought for and chose you first. Now, there are two main, there are a few perspectives, but here are the two main perspectives when it comes to the doctrine of election, especially when God says these words, chose and predestined. Arminian and Reformed. And you can hold to either of these positions and be a member of this church to be a faithful Christian. We have brothers and sisters in both areas here. Uh, so we're not going to condemn either one. The Arminian perspective slightly disagrees with what I just said. And they would say that when God says in Ephesians 1 that he chose a people, he predestined a people, that what, he, what is being said here is that before the foundation of, wor- of the world, God knew who would choose him, not that he chose them. Essentially, God is outside of time, right? He, he, he created the limits of time, and God can see all things from past to future, And so in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God looked down the corridors of the hallways of time and saw who would pick him on their own free will. And then based on that foreseen faith, God chose the individuals who would be saved. And any language of choosing or election or predestination in this text is more so talking collectively or corporately about the church as a whole, not as individuals that make up that church. Now, the Reformed perspective, which is my position and the position of our pastors, now we would certainly agree that there is a corporate or collective nature to election that God has chosen the church. But the text, we would say, more so seems to indicate that God elected or chose or appointed the people whom would believe. Not that he foresaw who would believe on their own, but that he saved them himself and appointed them to believe. In fact, verse 4, if you just look at it, it says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the the world. That word chose in the Greek literally means to select or to pick out of a group. That word chose in the Greek is also the same word described of Jesus who chose or picked the 12 disciples out of all the people that were following him. And when we look at that story, the 12 disciples didn't pick Jesus, Jesus picked the 12 disciples. In John 15, 15, the same word chose is used of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples and to his followers, You did not, same word, choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So the natural reading of Ephesians 1.4 is that God chooses who from humanity he will save outside of their own works, outside of their own merit, before they make a decision, before they're even born, before the foundation of the world. It's almost as if God is saying here, just like I chose Moses, just like I chose Abraham, just like I chose the disciples, if you're in Christ, before the world was created, I chose you. That's why he says, end of verse 4, that in love, end of 5, he, what he predestined us. That word predestined is used six times in the New Testament. It literally means foreordained, predecided. Like on Sunday, I predestined, I foreordained, I predecided I'm going to get the steak tacos before I even got in my car to go to Chipotle. And it was a great choice. And in the same way, God has predestined that he would save you if you're in Christ. And the reason this is pretty clear is because it's not just in Ephesians 1, it's all throughout your Bible. This language of God appointing people for salvation is all throughout the New Testament. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, Paul says that he has, what? Chosen you. 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He gave you good works in Jesus before the ages began. John 6, this will really blow your mind. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Acts 13, 48, this is a really clear one. And when the Gentiles heard this, this is when the gospel was first preached in a lost city, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were what? Appointed. Predestined. To eternal life, believed. If you're still not convinced, I just challenge you to read Romans chapter 9, and that will really blow your mind. In one, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but in one part of that chapter, Paul says, though they, he's talking about here, Jacob and Esau, characters in the Old Testament, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she's talking about Jacob and Esau's mother, their mother was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We get to verses like that and it gets real uncomfortable, doesn't it? We want to squirm a little bit. We want to turn the page to the next verse. And I get that verses like this can be scary, can be confusing. And so let me just attack that head on with three common concerns that usually come when we read texts like Ephesians 1, Romans 9, and these others on election. Here's the first concern that usually comes about, and that is election doesn't make sense. Election contradicts man's responsibility. If I'm responsible for my choices, if I can make my own choices, how can God also be sovereign over those choices? And when I first read Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, I was part mind-blown and part upset. You know, your emotions tend to run high when you feel your man-centered world crumbling beneath you. There's a famous theologian who's now reformed. His name is John Piper. He shared that while he was in seminary, he first learned about the doctrine of election, and he was livid the first time he heard it. In fact, he went up to his seminary professor, Dr. Morgan, in the hallway after class, and after a few minutes of pretty arrogant and heated argument from, Dr. Pi- or from young John Piper to Dr. Morgan, Piper fed up, finally grabbed a pen, hand- <laughs> held it up in Dr. Morgan's face, and dropped it in front of his face. And he arrogantly said to Dr. Morgan, who dropped the pen, Dr. Morgan? Was it God or was it me? It was me. I dropped the pen. I'm responsible. It was my choice. And his point was, God's sovereignty contradicts man's responsibility. But by the end of the semester, after studying the scriptures, Piper would write in his final exam, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and the doctrine of election have devoured my love affair with human autonomy and ultimate self-determination of my will. My worldview cannot stand against the scriptures. You see, if you're a Christian this morning, you're going to have to eventually decide if you're going to believe what you want to believe about God or what God has already revealed about himself. You need to decide if you're going to worship the God of your imagination or the God of revelation. And there's going to be something in the Bible that everyone finds offensive, and you need to decide, is he Lord or are you Lord? And the Bible tells us plainly, God tells us plainly, that he chooses who believes in him. He is sovereign and we are responsible. Romans 14, 12 does say each of us is accountable for our sins. So we are somehow accountable for our choices. But also the scriptures affirm God is sovereign over them. Remember, I said this passage is one sentence, right? And in this one sentence in Ephesians 1... Paul can talk about God choosing us, predestining us, and in that same sentence, saying, verse 13, you believe the gospel. Essentially, you drop the pen. Only God can write that sentence, right? 
and we're glad he did. Election and our own faith belong in the same sentence. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are united. They're not opposed factors. Somehow, in the mystery of salvation, God causes everything to happen, including us coming to Christ, but He does so in such a way that upholds our ability to make willing, responsible decisions. Choices that have real and eternal consequences and for which we are held accountable for them. Now, you're here and you say, that's not fair. It's not fair that he determines who will be saved and who doesn't. To which I would say, you don't want fair. Fair means every human being goes to hell. Fair means you stand accountable for all your sins and Jesus does not die on your behalf and give you his righteousness. You don't want fair. It's not fair the perfect son of God died in our place. God is God. He is sovereign over the universe. And if he is sovereign over the universe, he is certainly sovereign over the realm of redemption. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I choose to have compassion. And so somehow we find here in the Bible that God has sovereignly appointed you for salvation if you're in Christ. And yet, if you're not in Christ, you're accountable for your sins. I get that these things can seem contradictory. They can seem like they don't make sense. Can I give you an illustration that might help you? On the screen is a shape. In two dimensions, you know what two-dimensional means? It's length and width, right? Just seeing something like on a flat piece of paper, something uh, that is not three-dimensional, from two dimensions, that is a circle, correct? Could you raise your hand if you agree that is a circle? Okay, past geometry class. Uh, next. Now, that is a rectangle. Could you raise your hand if you agree that is a rectangle? Okay, we got everyone on the same page here. We're doing great. Would you agree with me that in two dimensions, that rectangle will never be a circle. And, in two dimensions, that circle will never be a rectangle. It's impossible. In this dimension, it's either or. Either a circle, or either a rectangle. But what if you were a two-dimensional being, stuck in a two-dimensional perspective, only able to see Two dimensions, length and width. But then you were transported or taken outside of the second dimension into a third dimension and height was added. And you were able to see then three-dimensional objects. So, let me give an example. This battery right here. From a two-dimensional perspective, what shape is this battery right now? It's a circle, right? From a two-dimensional perspective, what shape is this battery right now? It's a rectangle. So if you were to see this battery from a two-dimensional perspective, you would say circle or rectangle. But you step outside the limits of length and width and add height. Is this a circle or is it a rectangle? Yes. Yes. What was either or in the second dimension, in the third dimension, becomes both and. It is a circle and it is a rectangle. How much blood has been spilled, oxygen wasted, arguing whether it's a rectangle or a circle, when we in our fallen, two-dimensional, in a sense, finite brains cannot fathom a God who is outside our dimension, able to take what is a circle and a rectangle and turn it into a sphere. A cylinder. In the great realm of God's existence in the heavenly places, things that don't make sense to us, that seem contradictory, are both. 
I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. He, someone came up to him and asked him, Charles, Dr. Spurgeon, how do you reconcile these conflicting realities of God is sovereign and man is responsible? How do you reconcile those things? And Spurgeon says, I don't. I never feel a need to reconcile friends. Somebody asked John MacArthur one time about God's responsibility or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and he said, that's not my problem. And that's God's problem. And for him, it's not a problem. I'm glad I don't have to harmonize these things. I just believe them because the scriptures declare them. And by the way, if you're a Christian, let me just remind you, you affirm a lot of truths that seem to be contradictory or inconsistent. If you believe in the orthodox view of Jesus, you believe Jesus is both human and divine. How do you reconcile that? You don't. If you affirm the inspiration of the Bible, you believe that it has human authorship and divine authorship. How do you reconcile that? You don't. You affirm a lot of things in your theology that seem to be antithetical, seem to be contradictory, but are actually gloriously, mysteriously harmonious. And so we must admit that there is great mystery in the doctrine of election. And, and can I just encourage you, be careful. When you start thinking about something that happened before the foundation of the world, be careful that you don't think you have it all figured out. Maybe have a little bit of humility. Maybe recognize you don't have all the right answers. You know, God speaks in this text of his secret purposes, of his eternal purposes. You weren't invited to that meeting. He didn't ask your opinion when he made those decisions. Verse 9 mentions the mystery of his will. So let's remember, there is some mystery here. We don't know everything, so we approach it with some humility. Deuteronomy says that the secret things belong to the Lord. Now, we may disagree on some of the finer points of this mystery, and that's okay. It's, you know, it's difficult for us fallen creatures with three-ounce three brains to comprehend God. But let's remember that this passage is primarily focused on God's activity. And there will be other passages in the Bible that focus more on our responsibility as men and women. But remember, Paul is not trying to answer all of our the theological questions here, is he? Paul is trying to lead us to the throne room to worship. And so, while all of our questions about human beings' choices and our responsibility and God's sovereignty over them are not answered in this passage, let's be okay with a little bit of mystery, right? And if you see mystery in the Bible, that's your cue to start worshiping. I don't know about you, but I don't want a God that's simple enough to be figured out by me. I want a God who has a little mystery. I want a God who is far beyond my comprehension. That's more complex than I can understand. And so let's recognize that election does not contradict man's responsibility. Second counterpoint that people have to this doctrine, the issue they have, is that election contradicts God's love. Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated. Doesn't sound like a very loving God. You know, your question after reading this might be, if God chooses those he appoints for salvation, doesn't that mean he chooses those he doesn't appoint for salvation? It's a doctrine called superlapsarianism. Try and say that five times fast. Don't, it's too hard. Doesn't that doctrine of him choosing people for destruction contradict the fact that he's loving? I mean, 2 Peter 3 says that God desires that none should perish. Doesn't 1 Timothy 2 say that God desires all to be saved? Doesn't John 3, 16, the most famous verse ever, say God so loved the world? Hello? Well, then that gets into God's revealed will versus sovereign will, which I don't have time to cover right now, but I'll be up here at the front after the service. I can answer some of your questions. I can't answer them perfectly, but I can hopefully help you. Now, while we do want to affirm some mystery here, we should also affirm the other attributes that are clearly affirmed about the character of God in this text. Yes, the text tells us God is sovereign. He chooses, he predestines, he appoints according to his good pleasure and purposes. But you also see in this text that at the same time, God is gracious. And just look at the text, beginning of verse 6. He does this to the praise of what? His glorious grace. End of verse 6. He did this according to the riches of of His grace. So somehow, God is sovereign and at the same time, He's gracious. He's not some evil, benevolent dictator that delights in hurting people. 
The text also tells us God is wise. This passage says that this was all according to God's wisdom, His infinitely wise plan. And so if you affirm God's wisdom, you have to say the doctrine of election is an expression of that infinite wisdom. We also see in this passage that God is loving. It says, in love, God predestined us for adoption. So whatever you want to believe about election, it must be consistent that it flows out of God's love. So we might not understand how the mystery works, but we do affirm that God is sovereign, yes, but he's also gracious, he's also wise, and he's also loving. You can't take one without the other. And whatever he does, including election, is consistent with who he is. And those who still want to fight and squirm and argue like I did when I was a young Christian. You say, it's not right God sovereignly chooses who he will save. Paul responds to you in Romans 9, who are you, mere man, to talk back to God? What right does the pot have to talk to the potter? A similar passage at the end of Job, Job has had a hard life of suffering, and Job questions God. He asks him a theological question. Why, how, what did you do this for? And God says to Job, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you, Job, when I placed each star perfectly in the sky? Where were you, Job, when I set the measurements of the mountains and the sea? Shall a sinful man question the character of the Almighty God? And Job replies to God at the end of the book, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. Election does not contradict our responsibility for our own individual choices. Election also does not contradict the fact that God is a loving, gracious, wise, infinite God. And election also, finally, does not contradict evangelism. You know, one of the common rebuttals of the doctrine of election is that it kills evangelism. I mean, if God has already appointed everyone who's going to be saved, what's the point of telling anyone about Jesus? Because he's going to save them anyway. But did you know that the scriptures actually use election as a motivator for evangelism, not an inhibitor for evangelism? You know, the most famous missionaries in history, Adoniram Judson, William Carey, David Prainerd, even our own RCC missionaries, Dave and Alyssa Whistle, who went to Japan to plant a church in the second most unreached people group in the world in Japan, they all believe in God's election and believed in God's election. And it's their conviction that God has appointed a people for salvation, for His glory, that has caused them to give their life to reach these unreached people groups with the gospel. They've sacrificed everything to go to these places. Why? Because there are elect there. There are people God has appointed for salvation there, and we are going to bring them forth with our declaration of the gospel. In fact, you remember in, in the book of Acts when Paul is discouraged when he's preaching the gospel in the city of Corinth? And he's about to quit. And Jesus comes to him in his discouragement. And Jesus says to Paul, don't be afraid, but go on evangelizing, go on speaking, for I have many people in this city. I don't know about you, but it's a lot easier to fish when I know there's fish in the pond. In other words, Jesus says, there's fish here. Keep on preaching. Some will say no, but some will say yes. God chose them before the dawn of time, and he would draw them to himself. In election, what it means is that the hardest of hearts, the worst of the worst of people, will be converted to Christ because it's not about the quality of our presentation, but it's in the power of God, saving sinners by his own sovereign grace. And so whether you go to Johns Hopkins or you go to the basketball courts at Patterson Park, or you go to get your hair cut, or you go to plant a church in Towson or Japan, go with confidence that God saves his people. And it's not about us and our presentation. We do the telling, but God always does the saving. I mean, it's one of the most comforting things in my life is that no matter how I do this morning, God's power is what saves you. God's power is what changes you. Not my sophisticated words. There you go. So here's an example. I just screwed it up already. God's power works through it all. 
So we should evangelize with confidence because God is sovereign over salvation. And you should therefore boldly tell everyone about Jesus, trusting God will save some because he has appointed them to be saved. My wife this morning was tearing up just thinking about the idea. Maybe someone this morning who was appointed before the foundations of the earth will get saved this morning. Maybe from the beginning of time, before the year 3000 BC or zero, whatever, God said, I'm going to save him today on February 26, 2023, through this message, through this people, through this church. It's a crazy thought. It has nothing to do with me, nothing to do with you. It's all him. He gets to use us. We've seen two perspectives of election. The Arminian and Reformed perspective that I would argue for the Reformed. We've seen the concerns about election. Let me just close briefly with the implications of, on this, of this on your life. Why does election have Paul throwing a praise party in a prison cell? Here's why. Election should delight you, friend. Election, at its very core, means before you did one good thing, and knowing you would do every bad thing, God chose you. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. I'm just blown away by this idea that before the foundation of the world, God knew that there would be this little Muslim kid named Adam Mutasif who was praying five times a day and fasting, trying to earn his way to heaven. And God decided, I'm going to set my sights on this little boy and save him. I'm going to cause his parents somehow through their own decisions to be divorced. I'm going to cause uh, his mom to start dating this guy named Rick, who they're not going to get married. That was a weird, bad relationship. That guy was addicted to porn. But anyway, this guy, Rick, is going to bring my mom and I to a church for the first time. Right before that church would split up and tear apart because of conflict and leadership. And at this church that I'd never been before, this teacher who I'd never met would talk about this little guy named Zacchaeus in the Gospels that Jesus loved even though no one else loved him. And it would warm my heart. God would draw me near through that. And then someone would give us the Jesus film. And at the end of the film, I would pray and do what God had appointed from the beginning of time that I would believe unto him. And it wasn't because of my potential. It wasn't because of my speaking ability. It wasn't because I had done anything good. The scriptures make clear it has nothing to do with my right choices or my behavior. The reason for God's election of me is always rooted in the depths of his gracious, sovereign nature. He called me and he brought the gospel to me, verse 6, for the praise of his glorious grace. He doesn't want Adam glorified in. He wants to be gloried in. And he would save me to make much of him. I just want you to sit in the fact that if you're in Christ this morning, it's because God set his sights on you and gave you Christ and he orchestrated all of history from the Declaration of Independence to where you grew up so that you would be in Christ. He brought you to him. Even your faith wasn't yours. It was given to you by him. Just think about before the Atlantic Ocean was breathed into existence, before the Mount, of, Mount Everest was breathed into existence, before the billions of galaxies in our universe were breathed into existence, God set his affections on you. And then he worked everything in history together to draw you to him. I mean, if you are in Christ, you have been the object of God's affections literally forever. Solely because it pleased him to do so. To display his grace through a wicked sinner like you and me. I don't know, if you're here this morning, you're struggling with self-worth. You're struggling feeling neglected or lonely or unwanted. How can you call yourself worthless after reading this? How can you call worthless what God has already called eternally, infinitely valuable? You know, the value of something is always determined by the cost someone was willing to pay for it. 
how long someone was willing to wait for it. You know, like those Yeezy Boosts or Pokemon cards or a Rolex or a Philippe watch, Patek Philippe. People will wait forever for those items and they'll pay anything for them. And you need to know that God literally waited forever to save you and he paid everything, his son's blood, to save you. So what does that tell you about your value? How precious your soul must be that God set his sights on it before anything was made and Satan is doing everything he can to be after it. And at the same time, it shouldn't just delight you, it should humble you. I mean, this should leave you in awe. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that you were saved from. Even the fact you prayed a prayer to believe, he drew you to him. How can you stand in arrogance knowing this truth? There's an old hymn that says, I sought you, Lord, but now I see you are the one who is seeking me. I found you, Lord, and then I knew that I was found by you. And finally, let this comfort you, friend. Election means that God is more committed to us than we are to him. You are not holding on to Jesus. Jesus has been holding on to you before you even were a cell in your mother's womb. Jesus says in John 10, no one can snatch those the Father has given me out of my hand. God has and always will love you more than you love him. His love for you isn't contingent on what you do. It's contingent on his character, his sovereign, ever-changing, decreed will that you're going to be loved forever. And I'm just sitting there Wednesday at 4 a.m., unable to sleep, itching and scratching, begging God to take it away. At the same time, reading this reality and saying, God wrote my name in the book of life <laughs> before I existed. He knitted me together in my mother's womb. I rebelled and turned and sinned from him, knowing what I was doing was wrong, and yet when I had no one else, he came and brought me to him. And I'm just weeping with thankfulness Wednesday at 4 a.m. I got one hand in the air and one hand like this just all over my body. In Ephesians 1, the doctrine of election means you can itch and you can praise at the same time. You can weep with sadness and you can weep with joy at the very same time. My life may not be as I want it right now, but my eternity is. And friends, let these truths not just fill your head, but fill your heart. May you praise him in whatever situation God sovereignly has you in right now. And may this text not confuse you, but comfort you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or you're investigating Christianity, and you're scared, you're wondering, am I elect? I don't know if I'm elect. That's the wrong question. The correct question is, am I in Christ? And if you are in Christ, you are elect. And if you're not in Christ, he bids you come to follow him today. And he's had his eye on you from the beginning. Let's stop here this week. We'll pick up on adoption next week. But let's just revel in this beauty of election. That God's love for you literally has no beginning and it has no end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the mysteries of your will, the mysteries of your word, the fact that we are responsible for our choices and our salvation in a sense and our sins, but at the same time you are sovereign over them. That before we were even created, you appointed us, and may we believe that today. May we praise you amidst all the sicknesses and allergic reactions and fights at Chipotle and when the dog pees on the laundry. When life isn't going the way we want, may we remember we are always blessed, namely because we have been chosen by you. 
And may we trust you today. May we worship you today. May we give you the praise you are worthy of receiving because you have blessed us, bestowed upon us your glorious grace. We honor you, God. Thank you for showing us your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.